The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bears History by the Decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winter. Matt, the informative decade of our lives, the 1990s, is here. You ready to do this one? Kind of feel like I'm suffering from that Super Bowl hangover, Jeff, from the 85 team, but fight through this decade. Yeah, so a pretty good decade for us personally, as this was a very formative decade for us. Obviously, graduated high school by the end of this decade. Not so good for the Bears, but let's start off with the decade cocktail that we have. And I, you know, you kind of called me out last time, said that you thought I was going to do a mojito because of the famous TV show of the time, Miami Heat. That's not what it's called. Miami Vice. Miami Vice. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. That's a basketball <laughs> team. Off to a great start. <laughs> so, so you kind of called me out last time for not saying the mojito because of the famous show, Miami Vice. And I did a little research, Mm -hmm. and actually the 1990s came up with a hit of the mojito being a popular cocktail. So sometimes things start off and start gaining popularity in one decade, but then they become really big in the the next decade. And so that's what we have here, I think, with the mojito. And so I'm going to bring the mojito on for you because, honestly, the 90s, the other popular drinks in the 90s, there are martinis. And honestly, I think martinis are really boring, and I don't think they're really worth investigating too much they're pretty simple and i don't think it's worth talking about but mojitos i think are very similar to mint juleps and so i just figured we'd run through both of them because by the time this podcast airs it's probably going to be the time of year that you might be interested in having one of these drinks so let's just run through them real quick definitely so a mojito it's a rum based cocktail so pretty simple all you need is some rum and some mint leaves and some simple syrup and then some lime juice a lot of people will put a splash of club soda or a fill of club soda to make it more of a, a drink. I don't think you necessarily need a ton of it, but if you have a little club soda lying around, it does spruce it up a little bit. So basically what you want to do is you want to just muddle your simple syrup and your mint sprigs in a cocktail shaker. So muddle, just literally take a muddler and just kind of smash it around. And then you want to add a couple shots of rum and some lime juice, about maybe an ounce of lime juice. And then put the, some ice in the shaker, shake it up, 
pour it over some ice in a glass, and then top it off with more mint leaves and fill the glass up with, with your club soda if you have it. Garnish with more mint. Very refreshing drink. I think it's probably something that you've had and then you enjoy. If you are like me and you're not much of a rum guy, you're more of a bourbon guy, try the julep. That's actually probably easier. And basically what you need to do is take mint leaves and simple syrup, do the same thing where you start off by muddling the mint and the syrup together. Then you want to add in a couple shots of bourbon, fill that cup with ice. If you've seen some of these traditional juleps, they have actually like a mound of crushed ice. So it kind of looks like a like a snow cone, which I think is a bit excessive. <laughs> I don't think you need to do that, but I'd say just put some ice in there, stir that up. And I think sometimes people put some bitters on top of it, give it a little bit of a little bit of a twist. I think that's a decent idea too. But uh, basically mint-based drinks, you can either use rum, you can use bourbon. Both are pretty refreshing this time of year. Have you ever had a mojito? I have. I've made mojitos. That's not my favorite drink to make, to be honest with you, because working Sounds with mint is a little annoying. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a special order. It's not something I'd ever would have made in a bar but something I've made here, but you have to, you know, deliberately go out and buy mint and to know that you're going to use it. And mint goes bad pretty quick. And so you're going to need to use that right away. And I just, I don't really enjoy muddling mint that much, but once a year, you know, I, the, the julep during the Kentucky Derby, I think is a nice little mm. traditional thing to have around that time. But otherwise I don't really, I don't really mess with it. What about you? No, I've never had one, but uh, next time we're together and we're celebrating all our podcast awards we're going to win, you'll have to make me one. Yeah, well, six, we'll be six feet away, but we'll do our best. You, you buy the mint and I'll make the drink. Fair enough. All right, how about U.S. history for the 90s, which, I don't, you know, we lived through it, but uh, what was interesting that happened during the 90s? Well, the 90s are a pretty good time, all things considered. Uh, 1991, we have the Persian Gulf War. Uh, we kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Very low casualty rate for the United States during this time. It's seen as a pretty good success. After that, relative time of peace around the whole world, really. Uh, that involves the uh, United States, and so good decade for that. The two presidents during this time are George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Of course, Bill Clinton's probably now famously known as the guy who got into the scandal with Monica Lewinsky and got impeached. Uh, so that was pretty big news in the day. I remember that a lot of that coverage when we were in high school. I think it's a really fun decade for sports. You have the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And so anytime the U.S. gets to host the Olympics, I think that's a huge deal. And you had the, in the 92 Olympics, of course, you have the Olympic Dream Team, all those great basketball players, 11 Hall of Famers, and that Leitner guy. And so really <laughs> fun, really fun time for sports. And just the, you know, for the Chicago sports scene, the Bulls are incredible. And we're recording this during the time of The Last Dance, which is on uh, TV right now. And it's it's a huge deal since there's nothing else in sports to talk about. And so uh, a really fun time for sports. But I think the biggest thing of the decade is the Internet. The Internet comes along and Al changes Gore, how you. we live. Thank you, Al Gore. And I, it's tough to imagine life without the Internet. But I think you and I and people our age come uh, come from a very unique perspective in that we got to grow up most of our lives in our childhood without the internet and then when we're 16 17 18 the internet starts to become a big deal and so uh, we have that perspective as does anyone of a certain age that living without the internet and living with it but i i, I consider the internet one of the most important advancements of human history 
just for everything it's done for us, good and bad. And lastly, I want to touch on in 1991, right before the Bears played the Giants in the playoffs, a very important bit of history here, Jeff. You have the debut of the Superfan sketch on Saturday Night Live. Sure. Where one of one of the Bears panelists, I think it was Todd, uh, he was like, his prediction for the game was, Bears 31, Giants negative 7. And then someone <laughs> asked him, negative 7? And he's like, Dick, I'll find a way. <laughs> oh, God. Those, and I, I think that's an important thing to talk about for this decade is, yeah, the Bears, it's not a good decade, but right off the jump, 90-91, the Bears are still extremely popular in the country. And these sketches kind of help display that, that there's still a lot of love for Ditka. There's still a lot of love for those Bears. And there's still some Bears on the team in 90 and 91 and 92. Well, I so I remember Jordan makes an appearance on SNL and they do the, the Bears skit with him. And they kind of, no one's listening to Jordan when he's talking about, I don't know, raising money for charity <laughs> yes. or something. And they, yeah. they're just going into their thoughts, you know, and, and Chris Farley's, you know, got, you know, he's just... Polish sausage, you know, it's very funny. <laughs> but then uh, one of the guys asks Jordan, he's like, ah, you know, we're not talking repeat or three peat. We're talking minimum eight peat. And I, that's always stuck out to me is this like, it's a really funny line, but that's really kind of the timeline of the Jordan bull dominance. And of course, the two years in between where he goes and plays baseball, but that those over those eight years, the bulls win six, the, 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 the repeat three-peat absolutely and, and it's no mistake the attention they're getting now they were an absolute phenomenon at the heart of that is michael jordan who uh would he be a? I i can envision him being a wide receiver all pro wide receiver for the bears i i remember the sports illustrated article this is before he ever tried baseball this is like in 90 91 like jordan's maybe on the cover and he's in like different he's in like a a bears uniform and all this stuff. And it's just, it's fun to think, you know, he actually did pretty decent at baseball, all things considered, but man, I can't, who would cover him uh, on the outside? Six, six, probably four, four speed, a uh, 45 inch vertical jump. Mm. I mean, it's scary to think what he could have done with the bears in, in some position. Sure. No, I mean, he certainly would have started on a lot of these 90s bears teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anything else? You have pop culture stuff for us? Well, Jeff, it's time for our listeners' favorite part. It's where you get to choose your favorite TV show, movie, and musical group. Great. So we'll start off with TV. Okay. Here, you can choose from. Jeff, this is a tough decade. I don't know what you're going to do. Friends, Seinfeld, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The X-Files, Home Improvement, or ER? I Well, I mean, me today, I'm going to take Seinfeld. I think at the time I would have taken French Pr- Prince of Bel Air. I think I might have, at the time I would have taken Home Improvement. Right now you're definitely taking Seinfeld, but Home Improvement was a huge show. Tim Taylor, Tool Time. Sure, no, I, I got you. I think I was more into Fresh Prince at the time, and then I think now because you're older and you get more of the references, Seinfeld holds up a little bit more. Absolutely. All right, music. Here we go. Not any easier. Nirvana. Tupac, Smashing Pumpkins, Mariah Carey, Notorious B.I.G., Britney Spears, Eminem, and there I combined them, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys for your last choice. Uh-huh. First concert was the Smashing Pumpkins. I believe you went to that concert with me. 
Yes, <laughs> they were, and they were. It was amazing because where Jeff and I come from, it's a decent sized town city, but the, the fact that literally the best, the biggest musical act in the world came to our city was pretty fun. Yeah, so that that holds a special place in my heart. I mean, there's a lot of bands there that are pretty important to me, just from the time <laughs> of life that you were introduced to them. Obviously, uh, we listened to the West Coast rap music growing up. We listened to a lot of Nirvana. I, I think that's probably held up pretty well. Uh, but, I, you know, first concert, saying Smashing Pumpkins, it's not bad. And so I, I guess I'm just going to roll with that. What about you? I thought for sure you're going to go Mariah Carey, but I'm probably going Nirvana just because, you know, those bands that aren't around for very long, they have a limited catalog. Everything they did sounds good because they never hung around too long. And so I'm going to Nirvana holds up to this day. Sure, absolutely. Oh, Jeff, Jeff, our last category. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do here. Movies, Pulp Fiction, Titanic. Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, Fight Club, Goodwill Hunting, or Braveheart? I mean, Goodwill Hunting is like a top three all timer. Shawshank's right up there. Pulp Fiction's right up there. I mean, it's between those three. I don't know that I could necessarily choose between those three movies. I would say that the movie that I've seen the most is probably Goodwill Hunting. And so I. I guess i'm gonna go with that but man that's close with fight club i want to say shawshank but i don't think there was a movie that blew my mind as much seeing it in theaters as the matrix Mm. and the the sequels sucked and i think they're coming out with another one i don't know how that sounds like a bad idea but i remember seeing the matrix in theaters and just being like mind blown it was it was such a fun movie we watched it not that long ago. Uh, my wife and I watched it, and it didn't hold up that well. You know, I haven't seen it for a long time, but that, that's not surprising because I think that that technology they were using was still relatively new. Right. You, you know what does hold up is Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is great. Yeah, that, I mean, that's and that's early 90s, and I would say that that holds up incredibly well because I've watched that actually somewhat recently too, and it's it's still a really good movie. It shows you, you you can have all the technology you want, but a director like Spielberg, the, the Jurassic Park, I think it came out in 1993 or four. It looks better than the Jurassic Parks that have come out in the last five, six years. It, I don't understand how that has happened, but a great looking movie. No, no bad choices in there, Jeff. So, but let's get to the topics where we have a lot of bad choices and that would be the 90s bears. <laughs> all right. Let's recap the decade first from the NFL perspective. So, All right, so the Cardinals move from St. Louis to Phoenix in 1988, and then they officially become the Arizona Cardinals instead of the Phoenix Cardinals in 95. Was there a reasoning behind that? I was always... I don't know. I really don't. Uh, I mean, I think (laughs) think anytime you do that, you're you're just trying to represent a larger geographic area, and I, I don't know. I don't know that the people in rural Arizona felt like they were more identified with the team once they became the Arizona Cardinals rather than the Phoenix Cardinals, but here we are. So they're the Arizona Cardinals, the they're replaced in St. Louis by the LA Rams in 1995. And so I think that's kind of interesting. St. Louis gets a football team temporarily. They'll eventually lose that. 1995 is also the year that the Carolina Panthers are added to the mm. NFC West and the Jaguars are added to the AFC Central, which is kind of funny to think about. 
1996, the Cleveland Browns franchise vacates Cleveland and moves to Baltimore, and they become the Ravens. So it's considered a new franchise. The Browns get to stay in Cleveland. They don't lose the Browns name. They stay in Cleveland. And Baltimore starts fresh with a brand new franchise. Famously, Bill Belichick was the last coach of that iteration of the Browns, and he was let go in the transition. So sad for Baltimore. Although they've done pretty well as the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, no kidding. The Browns are eventually reformed as an expansion franchise in 1999, and the league moves up to 31 teams. And you probably remember that there was a 31-team league at some point in the history, right? Of course. Right, so there would be this, like, week one, someone would have a bye week because there was an an odd number of teams. Yeah. Do you you remember how many years that was before we got the 32nd team? Well, we get the 32nd team in 2002 with the Texans. Very good, very good. You have that that nice 16-team balance in each conference, and that ends the NFC Central division. Yes, and now it's the NFC North from 2002 on. And it's honestly, it's the perfect number of teams in a league. You've got two conferences with 16 teams each. Each conference has four divisions of four teams each. It's really the perfect setup. And so I have really hoped from that moment that this, okay, 32's it. We're not going to expand out of 32. So let's hope that never happens because I think that it's it's a really nice even mix right there. So The London... Fish and chips. As well, you know, they team. can take the Jaguars or something, but let's, <laughs> let's keep it as 30 to 30 second. I think the Bulldogs would be kind of a cool London Bulldogs would work for me, but anyway. Sounds good. So the Bears in the 90s, they're 73 and 87. It's their second worst decade, only to the 70s. So this was a bad decade to live through. They win the division once in 1990. They did make the playoffs three times total 90, 91, and 94, but they never get further than the divisional round. They lost playoff games to the Giants 31 to 3 and to the 49ers 44 to 15. So when they did get in, they you know, they were bounced unceremoniously a couple times. So you know, just just not a not a good decade overall. The success all came in the early part and then there was this black hole. So the Bears coaches during this time, Dicka and the Bears, they part ways after the 92 season. And I, you know, it seems to me, and I'd be kind of curious to know if you remember this or if you looked into this, but it just kind of seems like his antics were kind of wearing thin and they just wanted to go in a different direction. And 92, it's one bad year. The Bears go 5 and 11. And I don't know that that's necessarily enough to part ways with a guy, but it was enough of an excuse. Kind of reminded me of when the Bears got rid of Lovey because the Bears missed the playoffs despite they winning 10 games. Do Do you remember anything more than that at that time? You know, I, I was a little hard on Dick uh, from 86 to 89 in terms of not really getting enough out of those teams. But, you know, the Bears have a down year in 89. No one's expecting anything out of them in 90 and 91. And they have two of well, the two funnest seasons in that whole decade. And I think you got to, if you're going to blame, if I'm going to blame Dick uh, for those years where they didn't get to the Super Bowl. I got to give him a lot of credit for 90 and 91. Mm-hmm. You have an aging defense, a young offense. Uh, I think two of his better seasons coaching-wise. Now, the, it really falls apart in 92. Most of those 85 Bears are going to be gone after that point. You know, the way franchises work, it was probably time to make a move. They go with Wanstead, who 
at the time, if you were going to pick a guy to go with, you probably go with Wanstead. He's the defensive guy on those amazing Cowboys teams. And so I, I, I wouldn't regret any decisions the Bears made there. I think it was probably the right call. Yeah, so that leads us into Dave Wanstatt, hired in 1993. I think he's got a Hall of Fame mustache, if nothing else. So <laughs> yes, he does. It's a gift that he gave Chicago, uh, obviously affectionately called Wani to, to a lot of us, defensive guru from the Cowboys. And, you know, as far as I can tell, really hot coaching prospect at the time. It was considered kind of a slam dunk hire. And so. Oh, it absolutely was. It doesn't really work out in Chicago. He compiles a record of 31 and 47 over six seasons, but. Honestly, I don't. I just don't think he had a lot to work with. I don't. I'm not saying he was a good coach or that he turned out to be anything great after he left Chicago or anything like that. But I'm not sure what he was supposed to do with the cupboard as bare as it was. But well, the, goes, the the interesting the interesting thing, he's not full blown general manager, but they gave him a lot of power over player personnel decisions, which is what Dicka always wanted. Mm-hmm. And so, the cupboard wasn't fully stocked, we'll say, when he got there, but. He didn't do himself a lot of favors when you look at his drafts, and I think we'll, we'll get to maybe the Brian Cox decision, but not a lot of hits in free agency or through the draft during the Wani years. Yeah, so he gives way to Dick Duran at the 99 season, but you know, we're going to save Duran for the next episode. This episode is going to be the end of the Dick era and the Dave Wanset era, or as I like to think of it, the emptying of the cupboard and entering into the black hole of the late 90s. So, <laughs> And I like to think of it as a black hole because it sucked and there were no stars to light the way. A truly dreadful half decade. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because we were in high school during this time. But, man, I, this, it's all, I almost take that half decade personally of how bad the Bears were. And I just, I just hate. I hate this half decade, but 96, 97, 98. I, I can't remember really anything from those, from those years. 99. I remember for certain reasons, which we'll get to in the podcast, but it, I, I wrote down that word exactly in my nose. It's, it was just a black hole of a decade. Mm-hmm. There's actually some decent players during this time, but they're never going to get their due because they played on pretty bad teams. Well, let's get to the key players. So we've got some holdovers from the eighties, but you know, it's not a lot. You know, Singletary retires in 92. Dent leaves after the 93 season. He comes back, you know, injured a lot when he does come back. You know, but he hangs around for a couple more years after he leaves. Hampton's done in 90. Uh, the mm-hmm. offensive line retires. A couple of them retire in 91, one in 92, one in 93, and one in 94. So they just they just age out and retire. Uh, Steve McMichael leaves for Green Bay after the 93 season. And so all these great players, you know, they're at the – tail into their careers and so yeah some of them have pretty good seasons but they're not in their peak and they're they're all just aging out and so it's uh you know we we picked eight players and then we're also just going to talk about the quarterbacks because there's a lot of quarterbacks and so we didn't want to waste one of our eight player spots on quarterbacks i'm going to run through them you jump in when you feel like you can add some color to this but we're going to start off with jim harbaugh Harbaugh is obviously the current head coach of Michigan. He was selected by the Bears in the 1987 draft as a first-rounder. So it's a strike-shortened season, as we've talked about before, and you know he doesn't really see the field much at all in 1987. 1988, not much better for him. He doesn't, really doesn't become a full-time starter until 1990. So kind of a slow growth. It happened you know, in the old days of football. You, you could draft a quarterback in the first round and give him some time to learn. It's not like now where you throw him in right away. But that's kind of a long time before being the full-time starter. 
you look at his numbers and honestly even trying to put on some lenses to look at the game through like you know the early 90s it they're not very good his numbers just really don't look good you know the defense is still pretty good in the early 90s and running games you know still decent and so he's really not asked to do much but even his touchdown interception ratio is just kind of pretty unattractive but he leaves for the Colts after the 93 season and this really sets off a a crazy chain reaction that doesn't stop until Collar really solidifies the position and you know I'm reminded of that really stupid graphic that a lot of these networks like to put up basically taunting Bears fans of all the quarterback starters that they've had over the years and usually it's against Green Bay and they just get to put up you know Favre and Rodgers. Favre for the 200, yeah. Yeah, and there's all these Bears players, and it's just, you know, guys that you've never heard of. And it kind of starts here. I mean, Harbaugh does is the primary starter for a few years, and and then after he leaves, I mean, Steve Walsh gets the most starts in 1994. Doesn't have great numbers, but again, you know, he's 8-3 and when he starts, and defense is pretty good, and but... 10 touchdowns to eight interceptions. It's not great. Eric no, Kramer. I, I, oh, go ahead. I, I think I think I almost had as good of arm as Steve Walsh, but he, he won. But back to Harbaugh, the kind of frustrating thing about Harbaugh is he leaves for Indianapolis, and his 95 season, he's a Pro Bowl quarterback, and I think they're a Hail Mary away from going to the Super Bowl. And so comeback the kid. system – yeah, Captain Comeback. Maybe the the system wasn't right, or he just wasn't utilized properly in Chicago. It's tough to tell, but yeah, you got Walsh, and then you go to Eric Kramer, and Kramer maybe well, he has statistically still one of the best seasons in Bears history is ninety five or ninety six. Here, I'll get to it right here. So Kramer, you know, he's also on the team in ninety four, and then he becomes the primary guy in ninety five through basically ninety eight. Some injuries allow some other guys to play during that time. But Eric Kramer, he actually still holds the franchise record for passing yards in a single season. It's 3,838, so 38-38, very easy to remember. Same year, also 29 touchdown passes, also still a single season franchise record. So that 38-38 and 29 in 1995, still a record. That's sad. (laughs) It's also, it, you know, coincidentally in my mind, that's the year that the defense just absolutely crumbled to dust. Yeah, ab- probably one of the better offenses in Bears history. You have a, I believe, a 1,000-yard running back in Rashawn Salam. You have 2,000-yard receivers. You got Eric Kramer passing for almost 4,000 yards. And for once, our defense is non-existent. And we nearly get into the playoffs. It comes down to the last game of the year. I think we win our game, but... Whoever got in ahead of us won their game too, and so we did not get in. Just a, a really odd year because when you think of Bears football, you tend to think, oh, a lot of really good defenses with offenses that just do enough, but not the case in '95. Right. And so let's just kind of round out the list. Dave Craig, longtime Seahawks quarterback and famous for small hands and lots of fumbles. Lots he, of fumbles. He gets the majority of starts in 1996 with Kramer Hurt. Other name to know, you got to say it, Rick Meyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they trade a first-round draft pick in the 1997 draft to get Rick Meyer. And what does he do for the Bears? 0-3 record as a starter. No touchdowns, six interceptions cut at the end of the year. That might epitomize Bears quarterbacks at this time. 
And then I think his I think his first game was maybe against like the Cowboys or something, and like he just gets obliterated. It's it was just embarrassing. And you know, I, I looked back at his stats and I'm like, okay, maybe he showed some promise in Seattle and that's why you spend a, a first rounder on him. No, his stats are awful. Yeah. His stats are just horrendous and that's who we we trade for for a first round pick. I think that they just had on his college tape Bears with Notre Dame quarterbacks or Notre Dame guys or whatever. You know, they, it, it's bad. Uh, you know, by the end of the decade, it's Shane Matthews leading the team in passing in 1999. And we'll get in. We'll get into the continuation of the saga in the next episode. But it, 90s quarterbacks, Bears, uh, it, it doesn't really. It, it's bad, and it's a and there's a random franchise record in there, and so it's it's a really weird decade. Weird decade, and I think he left out names like Steve Stenstrom, Peter Tom Willis. Is Moses Moreno in there yet, or is he like 2000? I don't even know. <laughs> Moses Moreno is not listening. Otherwise, he could. He I could tried to us. stick with the ones that were majority starts in a year and Rick Meyer because that, that needed to be talked about because it's so awful and people need to be reminded it is, of it. It is so bad. Yeah. All right, so our, our eight players from the decade, and, I mean, where else do you start a decade that's this sad than with the place kicker? And so you are going to start off our eight players talking about Kevin Butler, the only remaining player from that Super Bowl team that we have not talked about. We're talking about him now, Kevin Butler. I think it, it shows you just how popular that 85 team was when the kicker has a nickname that everyone knows. Right. And... I don't know how much a kicker was going to matter on that 85 team. I think you or I might have kicked for that team, and we probably would have been fine. But he, he's a very good kicker. I, I didn't realize he how good he was at Georgia. He was a stud in college. Bears spend a fourth-round pick on him. And, in fact, he was so good in college, he is the only place kicker in the College Football Hall of Fame. And oh, I just really? think, yeah, like, wow. uh, like he was very well thought of. And I just think... It, he's the perfect kicker for that team because he's got an attitude. He's got a mouth. He's cocky. He's a fun-loving guy. Just fits in perfectly with that team. And there's a famous story of him at training camp, and he calls his wife because their wedding was scheduled for or their honeymoon was scheduled for the Super Bowl Sunday, which, first off, that's stupid. Come on, butthead. You know better <laughs> than that. He knows right away. But everyone knew that team was going to be good. But uh, probably the favorite thing I found about Adam is he was – like one of the only non-lineman players to get invited to the Thursday night offensive lineman party where I guess they would just eat and drink more than they probably should have. But just he fit in with the team. His teammates really liked him. I remember him for that single bar face mask, which even when we started watching football in the early 90s, you just you didn't see that much. And so I just thought he was so cool with that face mask. It just looked so odd because no one else had it. And... As far as kicking goes, his best year is his rookie year. After that, he's he's an average NFL kicker even for that time. Like he's not especially great, but mm-hmm. he was the longest lasting bear. Uh, he's he's the last uh, Super Bowl champion that Wanstead got rid of, and they they cut him for this guy. I actually remember this name. His name was Carlos Huerta. I think he was from Miami, mm-hmm. and it was a big deal. And uh, he Huerta. Huerta sucked his first few games, and so they bring in Jeff Jager. Oh, yeah, Jeff Jager. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly made Wanstead look bad. And also just shows you how popular Butler was, where 
the longtime kicker they cut, and like Wanstead took a lot of heat for it. Not too not too dissimilar from Robbie, Robbie Gold. Gold. Let me got rid of Robbie Gold, and so not Butler is not in Robbie Gold's neighborhood, but super popular. Sounds like he's just a fantastic dude. He after the Bears, he kicks for the Cardinals for a couple of years. He wanted to come back and retire a Bear, but him and management did not have a good relationship. That did not happen. Uh, he's done some coaching at Georgia. His son, I didn't know this his son was a punter in the nfl for like four or five seasons his name was drew yeah for the steelers and and someone else and so cardinals maybe yeah that sounds right but just sounds like a great guy and again the perfect kicker for the 85 bears completely agree i the next guy is trace armstrong it's a guy that was drafted in 1989 for Bears first rounder there. And this is a guy that I, I think gets lost a little bit to Bears memories because absolutely you know, he, he left early. A really good player. I Not a great player, but a really good player. Nice career overall. Finished his career with over 100 sacks as a defensive end. So very productive. Had two seasons in Chicago where he had double-digit sacks, you know, kind of the standard when you're talking about a really good season for a for an edge rusher. I always really liked him, but, I, you know, he really just – he only sticks around with the Bears for five seasons. He goes off and signs with Miami, ultimately finishes his career in Oakland. But, Matt, who were the Bears paying that they couldn't retain the services of Trace Armstrong? I mean, like, seriously, well, like, literally, who were they paying – that they couldn't afford to keep Trace Armstrong around. What I find really interesting about that is uh, that draft is, it's Wolford and Armstrong, right? Mm. So the thing I find most interesting about that is Armstrong and Wolford get drafted and they hold out. They come into training camp late. So what I guess the Bears start doing is they start reaching for guys and drafting them higher than they should because they know they can sign them for less money. Oh my god! And this happens with Stan Thomas. It happens with the '92 pick, who I can't remember because no one cares about. And this just shows you the problem of that decade, where yeah. the Bears start to get really cheap in some ways, and it it really starts to hurt the franchise. I, I remember Stan Thomas just because Dick uh, hated that guy, and he take. Uh, granted, he had a really tough job. He takes over for a Hall of Famer, Jimbo Covert, right? And it's just. Dick hates him. I don't think he lasts for the Bears more than a couple of years, but just uh, a bad omen of things to come for the Bears in that decade. Well, back to Trace Armstrong. He's got a couple nicknames listed on Pro Football References page, and I know you love nicknames, but these are kind of weird, and I don't know if you know these off the top of your head. I wouldn't have any idea. Again, I, I don't remember him very much. Okay, so one nickname is Happy Boy, which... <laughs> Seems a little odd, but like okay. So again, I, I imagine that these are veterans that are giving him this the, this nickname, you know, because he's a young kid, rookie or something like that. His other nickname that's listed is the man who would be king. And I wonder it's kind if of an that's, awesome nickname. That's kind of a cool nickname, and I wonder if that has something to do with like a dent. Uh, McMichael, someone like that. He said, like, "Oh, here's this young pup coming up, and he looks like he's going to be really good, and so you know he's going to eventually take over as this great pass rusher or something like that." So I imagine that comes from interesting nicknames, though. Maybe uh, one of our listeners knows and can yeah, leave maybe. a leave a note on the message boards. 
So after he leaves Chicago, he and he goes down to Miami, he becomes the president of the Players Association while he's playing, serves in that capacity for eight seasons, which I think is really impressive. So I think it has to be an active player during that time, you know, the, the actual player representative. In 2009, it looked like he was going to become the president of the NFLPA, but he was beat out by Demora Smith. And so even though Trace Armstrong was considered a favorite at the time, he, he got beat out for that role. And since then, he's been an agent for a lot of like head coaches and broadcasters, actually, hmm. which I think is kind of interesting. That's interesting. And one of those coaches is none other than current Bears head coach Matt Nagy. Wow, full circle there. Full circle. So, all right, your next guy is Neil Anderson, the first running back that I can remember very clearly and vividly. What do you know about Neil Anderson? Neil Anderson was my favorite player when I first was a Bears fan. Like, he's the first guy I can really remember, first guy that stands out for how good he was. Uh, he's the 27th overall pick after they win the Super Bowl. And as far as I can tell, and you and I have done a ton of research for this, but just in general, maybe the most praised draft pick in Bears history. Like when the Bears get this guy after winning the Super Bowl, everyone is in agreement that this is a steal, this is a great pick, he can learn from Peyton and then take over for Peyton. And that's basically what happens. He he sets his first year, he plays fullback his second year, does a pretty darn good job, and then once Peyton retires, this guy just takes off. He's got Four straight Pro Bowl seasons. Uh, three of those earned his last Pro Bowl season. You look at the, his numbers and you're just like, well, okay. Scholarship kind of thing. Uh, yeah. His best season, though, is 1989 by far. He has almost 1,300 yards. Uh, he catches 50 balls. And he has 11 touchdowns. And he almost averages five yards a carry. Like, he is legitimately good. Right. And I just remember him for, he always had that, you know, back when players would wear that big mouthpiece that you could see from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. And he had that, you know, the the regular face mask, just like Peyton wore. And I I remember he had like these, he would wear like these white, I think the the brand was Newman football gloves. I just Mm. thought those were, looked so cool. And I wanted a pair and he was so good. He was so fun to watch. Just like a really fluid athlete. And he would always have these, uh, dives for the end zone where he would, you know, hit the pylon with the ball. Just my favorite player when I, like I said, when I started being a Bears fan, I, I came across this quite a while ago and I, I got into this again. An interesting rumor I found is there was a couple years where there was chatter of a Marino for Anderson trade. Yes, Dan Marino <laughs> for Neil Anderson. Wow. And I, I found this in a lot of spots. Now, I don't think this is actually ever close to happening because if you're the Dolphins, why would you possibly do this? Yeah, no. Right. But I, I think it shows how good Neil was in his prime that he's getting thrown in with stuff like that. Granted, it's probably ne- it was never going to happen, but I think there was a couple years more Marino was upset in Miami and they were maybe considering for a little bit moving him. But I, I know one trade was this is before they even – got rid of McMahon it was McMahon and Anderson and like a couple first rounders for Marino okay and again I I don't I don't think the Dolphins make that trade but it's it's an interesting thing to think about where does he fit in Bears history I Matt Forte got a lot of comparisons to Anderson and and rightfully so Forte was more productive for longer I, I remember Neil had those 
had those hamstring issues later in his career, and you can just see his last few years with the Bears. He didn't he didn't have that burst that he had early on, but uh, he will always hold a really fond place in my heart because he was my first favorite player on the Bears that I got to see. Maybe more like a Rick Caceres? Yeah, may, maybe so. Uh, I, I think Neil's production during his prime years is a little better, but uh, yeah, the, I think they both wore 35 too, so a, a really fun player. I hope he doesn't get forgotten in Bears right. history because you know he has that four or five year span where he's really, really good. Right, he's behind that good offensive line too, which helps, but he's still a really good player, and like you said, he was kind of the first running back that we grew up with, and and I, I, you know, I really liked him. Another guy I really liked, Mark Carrier, and mm. this is probably the guy that made me fall in love with safeties. But first round pick, sixth overall, so incredibly high pick for this guy. Nineteen ninety comes in, he just kind of lights it all up. He comes onto the scene. He's got ten interceptions in his rookie year. He wins rookie of the year, and I remember this very vividly because Emmett Smith won the offensive rookie of the year, and I had this like football card where it's I remember that card Emmett Smith and it's Mark Carrier and I, I I liked Emmett Smith a lot and I was like oh wow these, these two players this is really great uh he he makes the Pro Bowl in three of his first four seasons and he's a first team all pro free safety in 1991 so this guy looked like he was on the path to greatness and then just kind of falls off doesn't do much but here's the thing he's on a terrible defense that Dent leaves McMichael leaves it's over for that pass rush. And there is just very little talent along that front seven. And so having a free safety basically by himself, the next guy, you know, Wolford we'll talk about here in a bit, but, you know, basically by himself with no front seven, a really good free safeties. I don't know. It's a luxury item. It's kind of like a, it's like having a Maserati, but only being able to drive it on gravel roads. Like, (laughs) you know, like it doesn't make any sense. And so I, I think, you know, circumstances that are out of his control, you know, he his play isn't as impressive. He doesn't continue to have any postseason honors. He eventually leaves Chicago, goes to Detroit in 1997 because, you know, again, we can't have nice things, and that creates a void of safety until Mike Brown comes along. Carrier, I you know, I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but Carrier is one of the guys that I had a poster of up in my room growing up. All these Bears posters that would come out in the – late 80s and early 90s of course the samurai mike one where he's got some sort of weird samurai thing and there's like cut footballs around him and stuff i don't know and then the <laughs> mark carrier one which they were not very creative they just had him on an aircraft carrier had him on an aircraft carrier yeah yeah i, I remember that poster <laughs> my my favorite thing about mark carrier is second tecmo bowl tecmo super bowl came out after he had his 10 interception season oh okay so he has this he has this insane interception rating in that game and so i would always be mark carrier and i would just see how many interceptions i could get in a season with him and try and always to get to his 10 that he got and then see how many more you could get after that yeah so he was one of my favorite players growing up i really liked him a guy that i didn't i don't think i appreciated as much at the time but i think i appreciate a lot more now is your next guy and that's Danell wolford the wolf yeah, 11th overall pick in 89, came in with Trace Armstrong, as we said before. He gets dinged up a little bit right away to start his first year, but eventually he enters the starting lineup, and he's basically the Bears' starting cornerback for as long as he is there. Like you said, kind of a guy maybe underappreciated, but has a lot of productive seasons. He's small, but he's quick and fast, and he usually gets the toughest assignment on the other team. In 92, he has seven interceptions. I thought he should have made the Pro Bowl that year. In 93, he does make the Pro Bowl. 
and teams stopped throwing to his side a lot more. So he started getting that attention, was a really good player for quite a while. He gets more injury prone as we go on in his later years, and eventually he leaves for Pittsburgh. But uh, 32 career picks, that was the most in Bears history for a cornerback until Peanut Tillman comes along and, and breaks it. But actually, Wolford uh, did it in fewer games and seasons than Peanut did. So we, we use the term black hole of Bears history. I think, unfortunately for him, he's just caught up in that a lot because when he starts off, you know, you got still you got Dent and McMichael and Singletary. Those guys kind of overshadow him. And then when he kind of finally becomes this really established player, the Bears aren't really good during that time, and he gets kind of lost in the shuffle. Just couldn't find much more about him. Uh, seems like an interesting guy. There was uh, one interview I found with him, but probably never got his due and someone that I'm glad that we're talking about because he was a really good player for a long time for the Bears. And a cool nickname. The Wolf is a cool nickname. Very cool nickname. Well, the next nickname beats all because this is James Big Cat Williams. <laughs> and you start off with a name like James Williams, which... You know, not exactly the most exciting name that you've ever heard in your life. But when you're six foot seven and 330 pounds, you get a nickname like Big Cat. It's a cool nickname. You know, just an absolutely <laughs> Very cool. all-time nickname. Okay. Any idea where Big Cat went to school? Oh, I, I had his rookie card. It was maybe what was then one double A or lower. Uh, I, I don't know. But I know he was, a, he was a defensive tackle right away, wasn't he? Yep. So he was a defensive tackle on football powerhouse Cheney University of Pennsylvania, where <laughs> their football program went an impressive 0 and 11. And oh, so, wow. not surprising, but Big Cat did not get drafted. He was an undrafted free agent. He gets brought in. You know, he plays a little bit on the defensive line rotation in 1991. He spells Perry and McMichael, you know, a few plays a game. Doesn't play much in 1992 as Chris Zorich, not someone we're talking about. This episode didn't make our cut to eight, but certainly one of those fan favorites, Chris Zorich. But he sort of displaces Big Cat out of a role. And instead of getting cut, there's an opening to learn the offensive line of all things, to pounce over there, be a swing tackle. So he does. And stalwart right tackle Keith Van Horn, he's nearing the end of his career. So in 1993, Big Cat, he ends up starting 15 games in 1993 at right tackle. So That's incredible. Thrown it's incredible. In. He, got, he, he switched over that quickly. He's really good, too. 143 career starts for the Bears at right tackle. And, I, you know, a lot of times through the years, probably the best player on that offensive line. You know, Andy Heck was a pretty decent left tackle. And so, you know, you could probably make the argument that Heck was certainly more skilled as a as a offensive lineman. But, like, a, he was really good. And it kind of paid off. 2001, he makes the Pro Bowl. Uh, sort of like an end-of-the-career hat tip for him there. But, Matt, you know, Big Cat, what's he most famous for? What do you think uh, of Big Cat as I, a player? I would say, I would say those his eyes – you get those mm. almost Singletary-like bug eyes and his, his huge hands. Mm. What were those big hands good at? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you're getting right, at here. So but he was amazing at blocking field goals. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Do you care to take a shot in the dark of how many field goals he blocked in his career? Five. Eight. 
Eight, holy cow. Eight blocked kicks. It's amazing, right? He was the best at it. I, that's just such a crazy stat. It could have been my best stat of the decade. You I, should have saved it for I, your best I, stat I of the decade. I should have, but I, I, I just had to use it here. I, this guy's just like, he's a beloved figure in Bears history. He suffered through terrible years in those late 90s. But, like, you know, I this is one of my favorite linemen growing up because he's just gigantic and he was a really good run blocker, kind of a road grader. And I, I just he's he's just got like a special place in Bears history because Absolutely. he was a guy that stuck with it and was able to make a switch and then started for a really long time and you know ended up like kind of capping a career in 2001 with a Pro Bowl bid and I think he's still around the Chicago area and and, and involved in Bears stuff and so anyway he's just a guy that we need to talk about because when you've got a guy that's been there that long and kind of makes that cool flip from you know it can be done. But it's pretty rare, and I think just a just a really cool guy and an all-time nickname. So for the last two guys, we're going to go with wide receivers. And I'm not sure that we could pick two wide receivers more different than these two guys, but you're going to get the flashy one with Curtis Conway. So let's start there. What I remember most about Conway is that I thought when we drafted him, seventh overall in 1993, I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be like, the first star that I get to see his whole career. And I was so pumped up for him because uh, he's pretty highly thought of coming out of college. And to think that, man, I'm going to get to watch this guy's whole career. He's going to be a pro bowler. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame. Like, his name is cool. Like, Curtis Conway. That's a cool name. That's a wide receiver's name. And he, he looked cool. He looked flashy. It just... Maybe the expectations were too high for him because he wasn't a bad player. His, his first two years, he doesn't do much. His first year, he's dinged up. His second year, he's got Steve Walsh thrown to him, which, no offense, I loved that 94 Steve Walsh team. It's one of my favorite Bears teams, but you know they're handing it to Lewis Tillman 40 times a game for 90 <laughs> yards. They're, they're, not, they're not throwing the Conway right, much. Right. But 95-96, Eric Kramer takes over. And look out, Jeff. This guy puts up back-to-back 1,000-yard campaigns and has 19 receiving touchdowns during those two seasons. I mean, he is a legitimate wide receiver in the NFL. He's really, really good. After that, it kind of goes downhill for him. Kramer is always dinged up or injured. And then he's got Dave Craig, Steve Stetrum, Shane Matthews, Kate McNow. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. And so his production... <laughs> really goes down and he he has this quote in 97 that if his if he was on any other nfl team he'd have 13 to 1500 yards a season which okay settle down mr conway but (laughs) he leaves goes to the chargers and in 2001 at the age of 30 he has an 1100 yard campaign and so he he had something like he had a lot of ability again just this black hole we're talking about where he probably wasn't in the right place at the right time or maybe he was and just you know with Eric Kramer getting hurt Ron Turner leaves he just doesn't have the same opportunity to excel that he had before uh, he's done broadcasting since I've seen mm-hmm. him on the Pac-12 uh, Pac channel guy. right yeah I think he does a really good job like he's a pretty charismatic dude yeah I didn't know this until I researched it but do you know who he married oh I don't know he married Layla Ali oh okay that's that's and they have they have a they have a couple kids so imagine those bloodlines holy cow you have uh, her bloodlines and then he's a amazing professional athlete too and so seems like a good guy just you know it's it's tough sometimes for us Bears fans I think we get so excited 
when we get a certain player that we just want them to be so great. Right. And given the percentages of how draft, you know, players drafted works out, it's just it's not going to happen that often. And then the other thing about Conway that I can remember is I remember one time going to training camp, and I, I'm pretty sure you were with me as you usually were, but we were trying to get autographs from these players. Obviously, we wanted Conway's autograph because he was kind of the the big star that you know we were really excited about. And I just remember him absolutely avoiding the autograph line like it was going to give him some sort of skin disease or something and rushes away and then we see him driving off in this like super expensive sports car oh yeah i remember thinking like oh that guy's a jerk you know whatever you know you know as a kid you're like oh come sign my stuff that's the most important thing to you in the world at that point but you know whatever i get it well when i was doing research for the championship belt series i came across this interview with him from some kind of like car magazine and he was talking about all these like different like fast cars that he's driven and that he was like really into it and i was like yep <laughs> like i remember that you're driving i think it was like a gold fancy sports car that so very flashy guy and couldn't be more different i think than the other wide receiver that we wanted to talk about <laughs> and so we're talking about tom waddle tom waddle six foot even 185 pounds not exactly an athletic marvel but I think it's fair to say tough as nails. He was one of John Madden's favorite players. You know, always John Madden always just kind of just obsessed with how tough Tom Waddle was. He put him on the All Madden team one year, which was kinda, do you remember the All Madden team? Oh, of course I remember the All I Madden team. I remember watching those those All Madden team like It was programs. a big deal. Yeah, it was like, "Oh, yeah, this guy's really tough. Oh, I really like this guy." And Tom Waddle, here's this 185-pound wide receiver, he makes this he makes this all Madden team. So undrafted rookie out of Boston College, and he moves up the ranks because, you know, he, he was willing to go over the middle, do the dirty work. He was really sure-handed. Again, we've mentioned this before. We do a little draft of the eight players that we're gonna that we're gonna talk about. This was, of course, my first round draft pick because this guy, he was my favorite player far and away. I know he was your favorite player in a lot of ways too for some period of time. I think I took it to like a next level obsession (laughs) but he was certainly my favorite player i think his best game was probably the 17 to 13 wild card loss to the cowboys where he went over 100 yards and scored a touchdown and i think that was the game that really solidified for me that this this was my guy this was my favorite player for some reason that game just really stuck out i i think for me it was is monday night game against the jets the first year he was a starter on the bears and I, I don't know. It was so long ago, but I've watched the footage of him. Go watch the footage of him in the Jets game. Hmm. And tell me that he's not a legitimately really good wide receiver. Right. I, I, clearly, he's not fast. Right. But he's he looks quick to me, and he looks like he's a good route runner. And he's Good route runner, yes. If it's on his hands, he's going to catch it. I almost think this guy would be better suited for today. Right, where you have a slot receiver. And, Slot receiver, and yeah. the middle is, has been litigated out. You can't hit defenseless receivers. And so guys are more willing to go over the middle and can succeed a little longer. So if you are a precise route runner and you've got great hands, you know, there's a role for you in the NFL. Go watch in our audience too. go watch the Jets game. He makes some insane catches. I think he goes over a hundred yards that game and just, I, I think he would be better suited today. And, I have a question for our listeners is, you know, I don't think 
it's unique how much you and I love Tom Waddle. I, I imagine there's a subsection of Bears fans out there that, yeah, for that period too, Tom Waddle was their favorite player. It's just something about the guy that made him very relatable to Bears fans. Well, I'll tell my story. I've told it in a couple of different forms, but I think it probably needs to be told here on this podcast, if nothing else. That winter, I decided that I was going to save up all of my money and I was going to buy a number 87 Bears jersey that was hanging in the rafters of a local shoe store. I can still picture where that shoe store was. I don't think it's a little uh, (laughs) shoe store. And for some reason, there was a number 87 Bears jersey. And so I saved up all my money from shoveling uh, driveways, five bucks a pop, bought this pretty expensive jersey. I think they were pretty expensive back then. Was insistent that I was going to go take it to a screen printer and have Waddle's name put on the back of it. And so the name, the the letters on the name are, are kind of bad because the front V-neck part of the jersey creates cre- uh, creases in a couple of the letters. And, it, you know, they're just plain white letters that doesn't look very good. And they're just screen printed on. But I was so insistent to do that. I got the jersey a couple sizes bigger than what I needed because, in my mind, I was going to wear this jersey forever. This was <laughs> this was the guy, you know. And so, you know, to my 10-year-old brain, like, this was this was the guy. I, so I remember having this jersey. We go to Platteville that summer. I'm wearing the 87 jersey. I've got a Sharpie. I'm, I'm so excited. Waddle's coming down the line, and he starts to break off like he's going to go to practice, like he's going to, you know, oh, okay, I've signed enough autographs. i got to get to practice. And he starts to break off, and I probably let out, like, an embarrassing, like, ah, you know, kind of sound. <laughs> and he, he I, somehow the 87 catches his eye, and he comes back, and he run, jogs over to me. He goes, oh, I, I, I see my number. I got I to gotta make sure I sign this. Signs the, signs the seven on the front. And then says something to my mom about, well, now that jersey's worthless. And and he runs off to practice. And I, you know, obviously I couldn't be happier. So fast forward to that fall, 1992. It's the opener against the Lions. And I don't know if you remember this game or not. I'm sure you do. Oh, I remember that game. But we were actually out on like a family barbecue, right? So we're on like a grill out. And, you know, it's uh, Labor Day weekend, whatever, like you know, or, or close to it. So we're out with our family and I am glued to the car because we've got, we've got the radio going and I've listened to the whole broadcast. I can't be pulled away. You know, of course I have to listen to this bears game and then Waddle catches the game winner. And I'm going crazy because of course I am wearing the Jersey. And as a <laughs> 10 year old, I, it almost felt personal to me. It almost felt like because I was wearing this Jersey, of this guy who signed this jersey, like somehow, like I was like helping. This is like the <laughs> the purest form of fandom, right? It's like this, absolutely because he did something, and I'm wearing this jersey. I'm feeling a connection, and so that's uh, the. Be- I mean, I, sincerely, Jeff, that's the beauty of sports, especially when you're young. Like it doesn't get any better than that, right? Right. A couple years later, so when we were in high school, and I can't nail it down exactly when it was. I think it might have been our junior year, but I, I can't, I was going to say junior year. I can't for sure figure it out, but Waddle's on the speaking tour and he comes to our high school. So, you know, we're in Eastern Iowa. It's not that crazy of a stretch that he would do this. And, you know, we get speakers from time to time that would come in motivational stuff. And, you know, I was like, Oh, obviously I'm going to go, but like, do I wear the Jersey? Because, you know, you're a junior in high school and above most things, you're kind of worried about, <laughs> is this, is this really uncool? And am I going to get made fun of for this? You know, 
I would not care about that now, but like then I certainly would. I of course you care about, about it then. Yeah. And so I ended up wearing it because it was like, it's Tom model. I got to wear it. So I wear the Jersey. I remember the local news, like shot some, you know, footage of Waddle talking. And then of course they got me in a shot uh, because, you know, here's this crazy kid that's wearing this guy's Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> he gets, he gets done with his talk and I, I walk up and I'm thinking like, He's got to be thinking like, okay, here's this crazy kid or what, right? And I said, hey, just wanted to say thanks. And, you know, you're my favorite player growing up. And he says like, oh, yeah, I was wondering if that was my jersey or if that was Ricky Prohl. But I see that uh, – I see the, I see my signature on it. So, it, I, yeah, I guess it's mine. And I was like, yeah, 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 you were my favorite player growing up. And, yeah, I just, just wanted, to, wanted to say hi. And he's like, oh, man, your talent evaluation sucks. <laughs> and so we had this like nice little back and forth for a couple of minutes and he was just really you know self-deprecating and I you know it just made me feel like you know like he wanted to talk to me which you know I'm sure he didn't but it, it's cool like to have that and they always say don't meet your idol but you know growing up that was Tom Waddle for me and I had a really good experience when I met him in high school and you know he's turned his career into a Chicago radio guy and and he's done really well and he's really popular in that and I would wear that jersey every year at every Super Bowl until we my my goal was to wear it until we won one but I I I retired wearing that jersey in 2006 when the Bears got to the Super Bowl. And so that was mm. my jersey for a long time. People would ask me who the heck it was, what it meant, you know, why am I wearing this autographed jersey that has really faded Sharpie ink on it? <laughs> and, you know, it's just, <laughs> to me, it kind of reminds me of the purest form of my fandom. And it's really cool that it happens to be for a really genuinely cool guy like Waddle. You have any other thoughts on Waddle? No, I, I think that story sums it up perfectly. And, and again, curious to hear how many people listening, uh, feel the same way about him as we do yep all right well we'll take a quick break and then on the other side of that we're going to get into our categories and boy this episode is a tough one for some of these categories all right matt we're back let's get into the categories what's your favorite or best random stat of the decade in 1999 the bears get a new coach and dick duran and they have a new offensive coordinator Gary Croton, I think was how you said his name. And I remember getting him because he was a college guy, and he said they're going to throw the ball a ton. Well, in, in 1999, the Bears did throw the ball a ton. They threw it 684 times wow. in 1999. And so I did some more digging as I thought, that's a ridiculous number. I can't find – there's maybe one more season in all the 20-plus seasons I've looked at where they even get over 600. For some perspective – when you think of 1999, you probably think of the greatest show on turf. Sure. Well, they only threw it 530 times that year. <laughs> and so I did some more digging, and I'm like, well, what's the record? And apparently, when you throw the ball close to 700 times, it probably means you're not that great of a team. Sure. Because the all-time record was 709 set by, this will blow your mind, the 1981 Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> who were seven and nine, I believe. Okay. And so just like the most random stat, but I'll give the Bears some credit. They thought outside the box. They got a college guy. And I remember watching those games. That was kind of a fun year just because you were seeing something different. But I think you're seeing a lot of those same type of concepts now in the league. Uh, the Bears were maybe ahead of the curve on something for once. 
Yeah, no kidding. Well, that I don't remember that happening in real time necessarily, but that's crazy that they would have that many pass attempts. Well, people people hated it, and so they sure they fired they fired the Croton guy, and they you do you remember who they replaced him with? I, I no, I did not. The the run the run and shoop offense. Oh John God, Shoup. John Shoop was oh God that early. All and right. so they 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 go the absolute opposite direction mm-hmm. from what they did before. It just it's very amusing. Uh, yep, toss sweep. All right, for me, my best random stat of the decade is that the Bears go twenty five years between 1,000-yard wide receivers. So in 1970, our old friend Dick Gordon goes over 1,000 yards. Mm-hmm. And then it's not until 1995 when both Jeff Graham and Curtis Conway go over 1,000. So that's really random to me that there would be that long in between, and then you would have two guys do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've had our share of 1,000-yard receivers since, but we're still oh, – maybe Allen Robinson is the guy that can – be that player for us that gets five or six thousand or five or six thousand yard seasons in a row hopefully i that would be great because it i think everybody is tied at two that <laughs> yeah. in the record books and so it, you know even if he can you know obviously this year we hope robinson can get another thousand yard year and then if he can get a third then he would actually own the franchise record for number of thousand yard seasons so that's kind of crazy all right next category and this one boy a lot of these I'm having a hard time, but who is the best player in the 90s? I wanted to go Neil, but mm. Neil's Neil's best years are 88, 89, 90s, so I couldn't go there. I <laughs> spent way too much time on this, and I, I decided to go Mark Carrier. Okay. Because he, he is a really good player in the early part of the decade. Three Pro Bowls, uh, his approximate value, I know you love that stat, is... 14, 11, and 9, and so not out of this world, but uh, we're grasping at straws here, Jeff. First, I wanted someone who played, you know, a decent amount of seasons in the 90s. You know, I considered, I almost considered Jeff Graham just because I thought he was pretty outstanding for the Bears when we had him, but uh, didn't only play a couple years for the Bears, and so I ultimately went with Carrier. I think that's the right answer. I think I would love to make an argument for late career Richard Dent. Because mm. he had some really good years in those early '90s, and I, you know, a lot of times I, I really do think he was probably the best player on that defense. But I, I think overall, given that you know those '80s guys were aging out, and Carriers a, a true '90s players drafted in 1990, I think that's probably the best answer. So we'll, we'll go with that one. What about most exciting player? Who'd you have for that category? Tom Waddle, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and watch the footage, people. I I know we look back at him and think, well, he wasn't that good, but no, I think he was actually that good. I I think if you if you put him on a 2010s Patriots team, he hooks up with Tom Brady 80 times for 900 yards, sure, and eight scores. Yeah, he'd be perfect on that. Go watch the tape. He is a good route runner, and he catches everything that he gets his hand on. I I actually went Curtis Conway. Because yeah, I was about to go him too. Yeah, but I, I did it. Yeah, I, I think that he was probably the more exciting player. You know, he did have that top end receiving talent. I I think it was more of the Bears squandered it with bad quarterback play than anything else. Story of the Bears, <laughs> just Absolutely. franchise right there. Uh, okay, favorite player for me is Tom Waddle. Did, is it Tom Waddle for you, or was it Neil, or you know, where'd you end up on that? For for the nineties, it's it's Tom. Waddell. Okay, all right. Easy one for us. All right, what about best season? 
I really wanted to point this guy out because he comes out of nowhere, looks like uh, he looks like a perennial all pro player, and then gets hurt and falls off in the early two thousands. But Marcus Robinson's nineteen ninety nine season <laughs> has to be talked about. Yep, eighty four catches, fourteen hundred yards, nine TDs. But I went back and looked at the box scores. He really doesn't break out until week five. Right. Doesn't have a touchdown until week five. I don't think has over like three catches in a game till week five and a, a fascinating stat for that season he averaged 9.7 yards per target right that's amazing which if, if he could have you know done that consistently that puts him in the category of guys like antonio brown julio Alvin johnson right. julio gronk actually i i hate to admit this but the all-time leader for yards per target is Jordy Nelson, which <laughs> no shame in that. Good player for the Packers, but whatever. But yeah, just I, I remember those games. This guy, you know, Randy Moss had come out the year before. This tall, athletic kind of jump ball receiver that can also burn past you. And it, that Marcus Robinson wasn't that good because how many people have been as good as Randy Moss? But he was pretty darn close. He I thought was going to be our version of Randy Moss. And just exploded on the scene and had a, a huge year. It's just unfortunate he got dinged up the rest of his Bears career. That is like a one-hit wonder, right? Like, that's like this random band that has this, like, all-time great song and then doesn't do anything else. Because he really, yeah. it's this one, it, and it's, like you said, it's a 12-game stretch. It's not even putting it up over 16 games. He really does put it up over 12 games. It, it It's kind of ridiculous. but and, and and the guys throwing to him for majority of that stretch are Shane Matthews and Cade McNown, uh, yeah. which just blows my mind. It's garbage. I, I think it's Kramer's just because those franchise records mm-hmm. still hold, but I, the Robinson year is really great. So I, I think one of those two is, is the right answer. What about best game? My same guy. Marcus Robinson, week 13 okay. versus Detroit. 11 catches, buck 70, and three touchdowns, all thrown to him by Cade McNown. <laughs> <laughs> it was the peak of Cade McNown as well. <laughs> I, I'm sticking with the Waddle playoff game just, just for stakes and, you know, for him just having, like, a great game. But, yeah, mm-hmm. for pure stats, I, I think you, you've nailed it on that one too. Again, some great lines from that year. What's the best – thing that happened what's the best moment i'm gonna cheat because i got two okay the first one i remember very vividly because a lot of my family extended family is vikings fans and so i was actually at grandpa and grandma's for the 1994 wildcard game versus the vikings and so i'm the only bears fan there a lot of the other family is vikings uh, vikings fans and we're going into minnesota we're the clear underdog and we beat pretty convincingly the minnesota vikings for that wild card win. Hmm. And so that's one of my favorite moments. The second one, I have uh, us beating the Packers right after Walter Payton passes away. Oh, yeah. On a blocked on a blocked field goal. I believe it was Brian Robinson that blocked it. Just a, a really cool moment and meant a lot because for obviously the main reason is Walter Payton. But also, too, we don't beat the Packers very much in the 90s at all. And so right. uh, really, I, I remember that moment pretty vividly, too. I think that's the answer. That's what I had down to. What about our GM stuff? What do you have for the best roster move of the decade? And there are a lot of bad roster moves this decade, but did you come up with a – we have to kind of flip it. Did you come up with a good one? 
Well, I wanted to point out this because it it kind of you can see where it's going in some of the early success we have in the 2000s. And it's the 99 draft after our first two picks. Our first two picks did not work out. I don't even want to mention one of them, one of their names again, but the third round on, we get Rex Tucker, Dwayne Bates, Marty Booker, Roosevelt Colvin, Warwick Holdman, and Jerry Azuma. And so for third round picks later on, that's hitting the jackpot, Jeff. Those are some pretty darn good players for the Bears in the early 2000s. And so that's about the best thing I could find for that decade. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm going one year earlier, and I'm going into that third round of the 1998 draft. And that is Mr. Olin Krutz. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. So Krutz, we're going to obviously talk about Krutz next episode, but he is the first building block on those really good teams of the 2000s, obviously. Uh, one of those, he's one of those fan favorites as well. So Krutz, to me, was sort of that first pick where you start to rebuild the roster into having a competitive team. And so for me, that's the best move of the decade, which, I mean, it's a great move, but it's kind of sad that I have to say the best roster move is something, and you did the same thing, something that doesn't actually help the team until the (laughs) next decade. (laughs) Uh, Worst roster move, I don't think this is debatable. It's a first-round draft pick for Rick Meyer, but did you come up with another one? Well, I I had Rick Meyer, and I definitely agree with that, but I also had the Brian Cox signing. I think a lot of people forget about that and how much of a train wreck that was because I think at the time – he was either the highest paid defensive player ever or certainly like the highest paid linebacker ever. And he comes in and it's, it's just a poo storm for the bears. And it just, it's, it's one reason why one of many reasons why they fall off from 96 on and they're just irrelevant. Yeah. So apparently that money that could have gone to trace Armstrong, they just saved it and gave it to Brian Cox. Yeah. That's, that's a terrible one. All right. What is your favorite? What if from this decade? The best I could do is Eric Kramer staying healthy because mm. his 95 campaign, it's legitimate. And so I think two things happen. From what I can gather, he starts having back issues, which takes a lot of his zip off the ball, which he had a pretty good arm. And so, but he just was never healthy. Even when he was playing, he wasn't healthy. And then to add to that, Ron Turner leaves, who he had all the success under. Uh, in 90, a little bit in 94, but especially in 95. But then they bring in Matt Cavanaugh later on and it just doesn't work out. And yeah, and I think if, if they, if Kramer is healthy, they don't trade that pick to the Seahawks. And do you know, do you remember who that Seahawks drafted with that Bears pick? Uh, I don't. I know that the first quarterback taken in that, it was a bad quarterback draft or supposedly. And I think the first quarterback taken in that draft was Jim Drunkenmiller. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know the, beyond that. The Seahawks drafted Hall of Famer Walter Jones left tackle oh, yeah, with that, that pick. <laughs> now, granted, granted, the Bears aren't going to be picking that high, you would assume, if Kramer's healthy and they're winning. But it, it just shows you how bad that Rick Meyer trade was. Well, you just cited the other quarterback stays healthy, then they won't pick that high. I mean, you know, come on. It's, uh, it's crazy. So mine is actually about Peyton Manning. Okay. Okay. So in 1997, the Bears start off one in ten, and then for some unknown reason, they win three of their last five, and they finish four and twelve. That's such a Bears thing to do. Such a Bears thing to do. The Colts finish three and thirteen, 
And so they have the number one pick. The Bears do not. They have four wins. And so they drop all the way down from the number one pick to the number five pick because they're tied with four other teams for, for a 4-12 and 12 record. And, you know, all those tiebreaker stuff or whatever. So they ended up with the fifth overall pick. So the Colts take Peyton freaking Manning and the Bears take Curtis Enos. Yeah. Freaking Fred Taylor is taken four picks later. Charles Woodson goes fourth overall. I hate this draft drives me bananas. So to me, this is the best case for playing your inexperienced guys to see what you have on the roster. You know, like, oh, hey, sorry, guys. Uh, You know, that ankle injury that you've been nursing. We're going to put you on IR because this is one of those. It's a lost season. You're one in ten. What are you doing playing guys (laughs) competitively? I'm sorry. Like, just pack it in. Make it look respectable but just pack it in because you're talking about a franchise quarterback that's going to be in the rookie draft here and there's people like well the bear i've i've said it well the bears would have took ryan leaf you know when you dig in to the interviews that ryan leaf and peyton manning gave there was no choice between the two peyton manning was the easy choice because he was taking everything serious Ryan Leaf was not like you could tell Ryan Leaf was going to be kind of a trainer. I mean, maybe the Chargers didn't, but for the most part, it was a very clear choice. And then then I've heard people say, well, you know, Manning really struggled early on, which like, yeah, he had some interceptions in his rookie year, but his struggles early on are basically franchise records for the Bears. So I, I think that I'll take the incredibly smart and hardworking Peyton Manning in Chicago and see what happens. And I, I just I, – what happened in the last part of that year where the Bears just decided they were going to start winning football games? And, again, it wasn't like, oh, they beat other bad teams and they, it was just a schedule thing. Like, they beat a couple of good teams. They beat a playoff team, you know, towards the end of the year. And such it's like, a Bears thing ah, to do. It's such a Bears thing to do. And it's Peyton freaking Manning. What – you know, the what ifs just can't go on. Well, obviously, if he plays for the Bears, he doesn't beat the Bears in a Super Bowl. We can start off with that. And so I <sighs> – and I don't know, just one of those things. Everything changes from there. That's I don't know if it's my favorite what if because I'm all I'm honestly angry right now just thinking about it. <laughs> I'm depressed right now thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just move on because yeah, yeah. All right, let's get into the next category. So, what player from the 1990s would you pull forward into 2006? It's probably the last time we could ask, ask the question this way. But what player from the 1990s would you pull forward to 2006 to help him win the Super Bowl? I'm putting early 90s Mark Carrier on the Super Bowl team. I know I've done this at least three times now, if not four, but replacement for Mike Brown, another playmaker. Maybe he gets to one of Peyton Manning's passes and helps turn the tide in that Super Bowl. Yeah, I think that's the easy one, and I, I went the same way. And Again, we, we've answered that way a couple times, but I think he could fit. What about on the 2020 roster? You know, I'm going. Uh, I wanted to show this guy some love. Because it was hard to find much information about him, so I'm going Danelle Wolford. We are on the he's same kinda, page. He's kind of he's kind of similar to Kyle Fuller, anyway. Nose for the ball, playmaker, quick. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what those two could do as your starting cornerbacks. Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I'm really excited about uh, the draft pick Jalen Johnson to see what he can Absolutely. do as a rookie. But, you know, he can still learn behind the wolf. And <laughs> <laughs> and I think pairing up with Kyle Fuller would be really just fantastic. So, yeah, I went I went with Wolford as well. 
Now, who from the modern Bears, so anybody from 2000s on, would you take back to help out the 90s decade? And I think you could pretty much take anybody, but uh, who, who did you come up with for that category? I haven't, I don't think I've used this guy yet, or maybe I have, but I went Brian Erlacher. Okay. And not that, and, and the Bears had decent middle linebackers in that decade. They got Singletary towards the end of his career. They got uh, Barry Minter and Joe Kane, I believe, who were they're fine players, but I'm just going to go Erlacher because I want to start thinking about better times right now because this podcast has been depressing. And I just, <laughs> I want to think about, I, I want to think about Brian Erlacher chasing someone down and stripping a ball get a head start on the next decade yeah i actually mm-hmm. went cutler this one because this is the one that i thought oh nice i thought uh you have some stability at the quarterback position there was some talent at wide receiver from time to time and so it'd be nice to see what color could do I, I, again i don't necessarily know that the offenses would have done anything different than what jay was here there's a lot of turnover and coordinators and things like that but i think some uh some stability at quarterback could have helped and so i went cutler on that one all right, the last question, and I'm really interested to see where you go here, but who won the decade? The rest of the NFC Central. Sure, absolutely. The Bears were the leader through the whole 80s into the early 90s. Like, the Bears were the team from that division. And so when they start to struggle, it's like there's this huge power vacuum in the NFC Central, and Brett Favre comes to power. The Vikings have a lot of really good teams during that decade. The Lions make it to the playoffs quite a few times during that decade, too. And then even at the end of the decade, the laughing stock that was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, holy cow, they got Warren Sapp now and Derek Brooks, and mm. they're they're playing in the NFC Championship game at the end of the decade. And so the Bears struggle. It, it leaves the door open for all these other franchises to come in and kind of take the Bears' spot, and that's really depressing to think about. <laughs> yeah, so here's where I, my mind went was, Oh, I'm going to make an argument for Dicka because the Bears collapse after he leaves. Well, I mean, he got fired. <laughs> I don't think he won the decade. He got fired. And then he goes to New Orleans and he dra- changes he <laughs> and he trades his entire draft for Ricky yeah. Williams. Like, no, yeah. Dicka does not win the decade. And then I'm like, well, what about someone like Dent? Because his last few years he was really good and it kind of it, it solidified him to be able to get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, it took him a long time to get in, but like – you know, those last couple years really helped him get in. I was like, yeah, maybe. You know, I kind of kept going back and forth. It's definitely not another coach. It's definitely not a GM. And a player of any significance here, I had a hard time. And so for me, I'm going total homer. Why not? It's our show. We can do what we want. I'm picking Tom Waddle. Tom Waddle wins the 90s. And the reason is, you look at his career stats, they're not that impressive. It's like... 170 catches, 2,100 yards, something like that over his career. And he's able to parlay that into having this huge impact on probably a narrow generation, but it's the generation that I live in. And then he has been able to have a very successful career as a Chicago radio personality. And I think even today, he is still incredibly popular. And so in the face of not a lot of success, and not a lot of star players. I think Tom Waddle wins the decade, so I'm t- going total homer. I'm perfectly fine with that. Long live the Waddle decade. <laughs> the Waddle decade. All right. So that's it. That's the 1990s. Join us next time as we're going to cover a more exciting decade in the 2000s or the 20 aughts, however you want to say it. Don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at Gridironborn. And until next time, thanks for listening and bear down.